6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 19 through 21. Well, we're in the book of Psalms, and we're going to take three of them tonight, 19, 20, and 21. And uh, just by way of orientation here, the Psalms, of course, was the hymnal of Israel. It's poetry of a certain kind, laced with very strong theology and uh, prophecy, actually. The Hebrew term is actually means praises, and 55 of the 150 are addressed specifically to the chief musician. So these were intended, a poetry was intended to be sung and accompanied with instruments. The Greek terms, well, psalmoi, which is a poem to be sung on a stringed instrument, or psalter, which is the same kind of thing for a harp, is where we get the English term, for psalms, for this book. But the nature of poetry here is a little different than most of us are used to. Most of us are used to poetry in the phonetic sense, with two kinds of things. The parallelism of sound we call rhyme, we think of poetry having some kind of rhyme and some kind of meter or some kind of rhythm. So we're used to poetry implying parallelism of either sound or of tempo or time. Hebrew poetry is of a different kind altogether. It's con it has a conceptual design. The parallelism is there in several forms, but it's always of ideas or concepts. Instead of phonemes, we're talking about semimes, concepts. Now, there are th several kinds of parallelism. Comparative uh, parallelism to illuminate some idea, contrastive parallelism, antithetic, that is to explain it by use of opposites, and completive or synthetic. We'll also incur uh, a number of times a term selah. Some people think that this is a pause for musical instruction. Others suspect that it really was a pause to connect ideas. So when you come, when you come across this strange word from time to time, it's a pause to consider what's been, to meditate on what's been said so far. Okay. Now, synonymous parallelism, that's where the second of two lines restates the first. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Two expressions that are parallel in a constructive sense, in a parallel sense. Antithetic parallelism is sort of the opposite. That's where the lines are in contrast to each other. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Two lines that are, in a sense, antithetical, if you will. And then another type is synthetic parallelism, and that's where each successive line expands the, the concept expressed by the previous one. We'll see, we'll see a pair of these tonight as we get into Psalm 19. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's what we call synthetic parallel. Synthetic, it's a synthesis, it's putting it together. 
73 of the 150 Psalms were attributed to David explicitly. Then there's a group of others, uh, the oldest one probably being the one by Moses himself, which is in the collection. Then there's 48 that are anonymous, if you will. Now, many categorizations of the Psalms include the idea that they are in five books. And uh, these five divisions, each one ends with a specific kind of style uh, benediction. And the first 41 Psalms are sometimes called the Genesis Psalms. The next, uh, from 40, the next 30 are uh, the Exodus Psalms. Then we have a substantial group that are called the Levitical Psalms. And then Numbers 90 through 106 and Deuteronomy. These are often labeled after the Pentateuch itself, the first five books of Moses. And there are some things about this that are appealing. There's also some things that I think are a little contrived. So I wouldn't overemphasize this. I just mention it because you may run into it in your reading. Now I get to my real caveat. Having said all of that, I'm going to suggest you do your best to forget it. Because the real issue here is chewing the cud. What do I mean by that? See, that was the key to clean sacrifices. The animals that were used for sacrifices were those that chewed the cud. That was considered a clean animal because they would, they, they, you know, they would chew the cud. We, wanna, we are admonished to do that with the Word of God. We want to avoid what I would call analysis paralysis. There are places in the Scripture where it really pays to analyze precisely, dissect it, or, you know, see how it's structured, get in under the text, and so forth, uh, that can be very, very useful. And uh, very, very important to be very precise and very, very um, analytical in what you're doing. There are other places where that's going to get in the way of really appreciating what's going on. This is one of them. Analysis can blindfold our souls to the message. And these are messages that are really to be tasted, to be digested. We're looking for prayerful absorption rather than intellectual dissection. The Psalms are done best by being meditated upon. The Psalms are a gateway to the presence of God. And we want to, so what you really want to do, you really won't understand a Psalm until you've read it maybe 20 or 30 times. And that sounds like I'm exaggerating, only a little bit maybe. But, uh, so let's try one. Let's take a look at Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19, I have to tell you right up front, is a bit unique. That's one reason we've just we've restricted our intake this coming session. We often take try to take a handful of these because we'd like to get through 150 uh, before the, the decade is over. Uh, but um, uh, in this case, we're going to try to be rather relaxed in our ta tackling Psalm 19. Immanuel Kant said of this psalm, he said, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe. Here's one of the great minds. It says, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe. The more often and more seriously reflection concentrates upon them, the starry heaven above me and the moral law within me. Those are the two things that really filled his mind. Two things. You wouldn't think they're related, but they are. The starry heaven above overwhelmed Kant. As he looked up in the stars, he saw that that's an overwhelming to try to contemplate what's there. And the other is the moral law inside him. 
Interesting. C.S. Lewis said it more directly. He says, I take this psalm, that is Psalm 19, to be the greatest poem in the psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. That's pretty wild from C.S. Lewis himself. So that's a perspective. Let's jump in and just read it through once and then go back and take a look at it more carefully. Let's just read it. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. So this one explicitly labeled from David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Wow. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So there you have it, 14 verses. Let's just take a look at it more carefully. To the chief musician, the Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Declares the glory of God. The heavens. The heavens. You know, it's interesting that there are probably, apparently it's been by, one, by a very prominent biologist estimate, there are almost 2 million species of fungi, 10,000 species of ants, 300,000 species of flowering plants, somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 species of animals, 10,000 species of birds, and it goes on. These numbers, impressive though they are, pale into insignificance when compared with the stars in the heavens. Our astonishing universe. There are probably more than 100 billion galaxies in our observable universe. Not stars, galaxies of stars, where each of those galaxies may have over 100 billion stars in each of them. Just unbelievable. Typical galaxies contain 10 million to 1 trillion stars, all orbiting around a common center of gravity. That's 10 to the 7th or 10 to the 12th. Those are big numbers. So you got 10 to the 11th galaxies, some of which have 10 to the 12th stars in each one of them. 
That's gigantic. Those are numbers that we can't possibly get our mind around. Most galaxies are several thousand to several hundred thousand light years in diameter. The galaxy itself, just to get across it at the speed of light, would take several hundred thousand years. See, light years are a measurement of distance. The distances and the numbers here stagger the mind. Even the sophisticated mind used to dealing with this staggers in, try to, in contemplation of these things. And these, star, these galaxies are usually separated from one another by an order of millions of light years. That is light, traveling at the speed of light to get between galaxies would take millions of years. So we have no, it's just astonishing, just astonishing. But it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, what is his glory? What is the glory of God? Well, most of us would, first, the first embrace here would be the creation. As we try to get our mind around the creation, we stagger. And yet, is that God's greatest glory? Or is his redemption his greatest glory? Well, how do you measure that? How do you measure? What's more important? You're on an exam here. What's a bigger glory of God, his creation or his redemption? Well, how would you measure the importance of either one of these? By the amount of space in the Bible. That wouldn't be a bad measure, would it? Well, the creation, what does it involve? A couple of chapters in Genesis, a couple of chapters in the book of Job, a small handful of Psalms, a couple of chapters in Isaiah, a few verses in the Gospel of John and a couple of the epistles. That's about it. What about God's redemption? The whole book of Genesis really is all about that. Well, that's the book of Exodus is the book of redemption. That's what Leviticus is about end to end. And Numbers and Deuteronomy. All through the, all the prophets... Certainly, the New Testament, the Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles, are what? About the redemption of Christ. So which is the greatest? Now, the space is one way to measure that. The other way to measure of which is God's greatest glory is what did it cost him? Well, the creation took six days to be breathed out of his nostrils. He called it into existence. I'm not knocking that. But I suspect he could do that again in another six days, should he feel like it. What did his redemption cost him? His son. And we can't imagine. We can't imagine. What the, I think we'll be spending an eternity discovering what it cost him to allow us to be with him. When Paul preached to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, he began in Acts 14, he began with a creation, as he was speaking to the Greek minds. But then he went to the gospel. Well, let's go at this again. To the chief musician, the Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the ferment showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. 
There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is going out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. First four verses. The technology that I see here is not astronomy, nor is it necessarily limited to the heavens declaring through the zodiac. I can't help it, since my personal expertise is in the information sciences, what fascinates me, that leaps out at me, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. These are information terms. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their, their words are to the end of the world. In there, twice in each phrase, there are information terms. The, the creation is screaming at us continually of what God would have us know. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night uttereth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. What is this saying? This is saying that no one has any excuse for not recognizing God who he is. And it's interesting that the exact, that's exactly what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everybody says, well, what about the savage in the jungles? Well, if he doesn't get the message, it's our job to bring it to him then, huh? In Romans 10, Paul actually quotes Psalm 19 to make his point. In Romans 10, starting verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? He's quoting there from Isaiah 53. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Does that sound familiar? That's a quote from Psalm, 4, uh, Psalm 19. It's interesting that Philip Brooks gave the first instructions about God to Helen Keller. Remember Helen Keller was the gal that was born deaf and blind, Right? Philip Brooks gave the first instructions about God to her, and she replied that she had always known it was a God, but she didn't know what his name was. Staggering. Our task is to tell the world what his name is. His name is Jesus. There have been books written called Eternity in Their Hearts. It's astonishing when they go into ancient tribal areas, they discover people that already know all about Jesus. They may just have another label for it. Their line is gone throughout all the earth, verse 4, and their words to the end of the world, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. The word line there in the Septuagint is translated sound. Their line, their sound, their influence is the way some translators handle that. His going forth is from the end of heaven. Oh, let's, let's take the whole thing. The line is gone through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. You, f you feel strength and joy in the, that expression. But speaking of the sun, 
It says, his going forth is from the end of heaven, end of the heaven, and is circuit unto the ends of it. And I remember as a teenager reading critics that said, see how silly that is? Everybody knows the sun doesn't rise and set. That they, that they assume that this is Ptolemaic uh, cosmology. cosmology. Copernicus came along and proved to us the sun doesn't rise, the earth turns. See, this is out of date. This is what they call an anachronism. That's only because they, the critics, haven't done their homework. It, the presumption that it's not talking about sunrise and sunset, it's talking about the, the path of the sun. And the path of the sun is from one end of heaven to the other. And uh, the circuit to the ends of it. The Milky Way, that is this the galaxy that we are in called the Milky Way, is a spiral galaxy of about 400 billion stars. That's a lot of stars. It has a central bulge, and then it's sort of an extended disk, and uh, it, uh, the diameter of the thing is about 100,000 light years. If you are traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end to the other of this galaxy. We are, the sun, is at about 28,000 light years from the center. It's, it has, it's, it's looking at the edge, it's flat with a, a bulge in the middle. And uh, you, they actually have been able to map this and figure out where we are, and we're 28,000 light years from the center. And the others are, anyway... His going forth is from the end of heaven and a circuit unto the ends of it. And then it says, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Something may, people may not realize is the, the, the source of all the energy in the solar system is from the sun. The entire solar system, in all the planets... All the energy on those planets comes from the sun. And certainly, all the, all the energy on the planet Earth comes from the sun. Well, what about gas and oil? Oil came from compressed leaves that, came, that stored their energy over periods of time and under pressure from the sun. Let's just take an example of the leaves. We're in this season now where the leaves are starting to change. We're seeing the marvelous colors. There's a whole story behind those. I'll spare you right here. Get into our Genesis commentary if you want the details. But if you, if you take a leaf and study it, you'll discover it is incredibly complex, incredibly skillfully designed with a, an elegant processing system that's too complex for us to do anything but summarize here. But the plants basically... Uh, give off oxygen and mix, it mixes uh, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen into sugar, glucose, which, of course, the animals need. The oxygen they need, and they need the glucose or derivative of it. The animals, of course, burn that up, doing whatever they do, and they breathe out CO2. The plants cannot make glucose or oxygen without the CO2. So the plants need the CO2 just as badly as the animals need the oxygen to breathe. So we have a system that is incredibly elegant and obviously skillfully designed. Now, well, this, did this all happen? Couldn't possibly have because you can't have 
a system of subsystems, if the system's dependent on the subsystems, the subsystems all have to be their operative for the system to survive. You can't have one without the other. You follow me? And that's, a, that's the irreducible complexity argument, Michael B. and others. Photosynthesis simply means to build with light. The, the, the plants are sugar factories producing millions of new glucose molecules per second. Most plants produce more glucose than they can use in store. And so they store it as starch and carbohydrates and roots, stems, and leaves, which of course are eaten by various creatures. Each year, the photosynthesizing organisms produce 170 billion metric tons of extra carbohydrates and about 30 metric tons for every person on the planet Earth. Every one of us depends directly on that photosynthesis, which comes from the sun. All, nothing is hid from the heat thereof. But there's something more in the psalm than just this tour de force of the creation and his redemption. See, following the fall of man... Creation has been subjected to futility and bondage as a result of the curse. That's described in Genesis 3 and elaborated on in Romans 8. To reveal himself even more clearly than from a fallen creation, a cursed creation, he has given us his word. So in addition to all of this, God has given us his word. and He's done it through a nation Israel to all the world. His word is pure. That's what the Psalm 19 points out. We need to dwell on that for a minute. The Word of God is pure. It's perfect. It's pure. What does that mean? That means you don't mess around with a paraphrase. You don't mess around with an inadequate translation. You find the most adequate translation you can. No translation is perfect. That's okay. Because the problems are typically well footnoted. But you want to have a profound respect for the word as it was given by God. Well, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek. I understand. That's what a translation is there to help you make that bridge. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Amen.